to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. I'm Blaze Bryant, facebook.com slash blazing shows, B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows, same with Twitter, and my website, blazingshows.com. Hope all is well, now you've had a great week as we are blazing through this week in history, which is May 6th through May 12th. We'll start with May 6th. 1998, Apple introduced what is a very common product now, but back on May 6, 1998, it wasn't. And that was the iMac. Here is the late Steve Jobs talking about it. Well, today, I'm incredibly pleased to introduce iMac, our consumer product. And iMac comes from the marriage of the excitement of the Internet with the simplicity of Macintosh. Even though this is a full-blooded Macintosh, we are targeting this for the number one use that consumers tell us they want a computer for, which is to get on the internet simply and fast. And that's what this product is targeted for. I also mean some other things to us. We are a personal computer company, and all this product is born to network. It also is a beautiful standalone product. We're targeting it also for education. They want to buy these. And it's perfect for most of the things they do in instruction. It's perfect for finding tremendous source of information over the internet. And we hope, as you see the product, it will inspire us all to make even better products in the future. So we think iMac's going to be a really big deal. Now, what should it be? Well, we went out and we looked at all of the consumer products out there. This is a picture of one of the better ones. And we noticed some things about them pretty much universally. <clears throat> the first is they're really slow. They're very slow. They're all using last year's processor. Very, very slow. Second is they've all got pretty crummy displays on them. They're generally 13-inch, a few 14-inch, and the quality of them is very poor. Uh, Apple designs all its own displays, so we're used to something much better, but these are pretty bad. Likely no networking on them. Some have it, most don't. Old generation I.O. devices. And what that means is they're lower performance and they're harder to use and most of them aren't, so plug and play. And these things are ugly. <laughs> so, let me tell you about iMac. We decided to make this thing fast. So we decided to put in a G3 processor running at 233 megahertz. We debated this quite a bit because there were cheaper, slower things we could have used. And we said, no, this has got to be the computer that we want on our desk too. A G3 running at 233, and we didn't forget the cache. It's got a half a megabyte L2 backside cache on it. This thing screams, as you'll see in a minute. On displays, we said, what is the largest display that you'd ever want in, one of these cons in a consumer computer? And the answer to us was a 15-inch display running at 1024 by 768. Let's go ahead and build in the best in every product. And let's have our display engineers engineer it, and it's gorgeous. It is an Apple-quality display that we are very proud of. Let's go ahead and put a lot of memory in this thing. 32 megabytes standard. It's expandable to 128. 4 gigabyte disk drive, 24x CD-ROM and let's build in a lot of communications. This thing's got 100 megabit ethernet as standard. Now why? Because a lot of our 
education customers want to put these high-speed networks in and because we're seeing it in homes. Approximately 10% of the homes in Silicon Valley now have class 5 wiring in them. We're starting to see lots of home networks emerging. A fast modem and also 4 megabit infrared built in. You want to beam your digital photographs in from your digital camera built into every product. We are going to the new generation of I.O. 12 megabit universal serial bus, two ports. We're leaving the old Apple I.O. behind. Stereo surround sound built into every product and a great, great keyboard and mouse. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny to think that here we are 23 years later and what was really good and fancy back then is really the definition of a dinosaur now, that's why we do blazing history. Because it's interesting to go back and look at time and see what really was at that time the latest and greatest. And now that's all stuff that, frankly, isn't even acceptable. And here we are 23 years later, and yet Internet access still continues to be an issue. Let's fast forward to May 8th, 1999. Nancy Mace became the first woman to graduate from the Citadel Military Academy in South Carolina. Here she is talking about it. This is courtesy of the Reagan Public Library. Of course, you were famous long before you even went to Congress because uh, you're the very first uh, woman, I think, to graduate from the famous uh, Citadel. Tell me about that that part of your life, I know your father was at one point the commandant of the Citadel, so you think, okay, well, that's a natural. She probably decided she was going to go there since she was in the first grade. But that maybe is not the case. Is that right? Right. That's not That's not actually the case. I never even thought I'd even go to college, quite frankly. I dropped out of school. I dropped out of high school at the age of 17. I was raped when I was 16, and on my 17th birthday, I just quit. And I quit on life. I quit on myself. I quit on everything and I didn't have any, I had no hope for the future. It was a very, it was traumatic physically, emotionally, mentally. And it took me a number of years, 25 years, actually to talk about it publicly. I wasn't able to, uh, it was traumatic. And for so many women, it, it happens to you, it happens to teenagers and, and women across the country. And I had a really difficult time. I learned some really tough lessons during some really tough times in my life. And I learned about the value of hard work also, because when I dropped out of school, my parents said, hey, if you're going to stop going to school, then you got you to start going to work. And I was doing all sorts of you know, drugs and alcohol, you name it. I probably tried it at least one time to get me through that. And no amount of therapy, pharmaceuticals or illegal drugs were going to get me through that. And when the Citadel decided to open its doors to women, that was in 1996. And so when I dropped out of school, I got my first job as a waitress at the Waffle House and then uh, started taking college courses and, and ended up getting my high school diploma by taking by getting high school credit by taking college courses. And so about a year later was when the Citadel decided to let women in. And my dad is a graduate of the Citadel. He served in the Army for almost 30 years. And I really felt like if I could make it there, if I could make it at the Citadel of all places, a very tough college institution, mentally, physically, academically, you name it. If I could make it there, I literally could make it anywhere. I cut the drinking, the smoking, the drugs, cold turkey one night 
in preparation to go to the Citadel, started running every day. And that decision, that place literally saved my life. And I don't know where I would be today had I not had that experience because I, I didn't go there because of my dad, but um, I went there because I had something to prove to myself. I had something to prove to my father and to my parents that I could go to a place and be challenged so I could face an obstacle unlike any other, that I could face that adversity head on and I could overcome it, that I could achieve something. And I ended up graduating at the top of my class rather than failing out of my classes. I was acing them and spent a lot of time with myself in the library. I was dry in college. I didn't have those fun college experiences that a lot of college students have. Um, I was totally sober and I totally focused on myself and my academics and healing. And the Citadel is a place that literally it changed my life, but also it saved my life. Yeah, I, you know, it, it sounds like a plot for a movie, you know, a great movie. And, and, and but in, in fact, it ended up being a plot for an important book. You wrote a book. I, I, I just want to congratulate you on the title, because when I saw that in the company of men, I just thought now that is really clever. And I, and I wondered. Did you, from the first day you entered the Citadel, think, okay, now this is going to be quite an experience, so I'm going to write a book, and you thought about it the whole time, or no, no, it was an afterthought after you yeah, made it through. I never thought about it at all, actually. Um, but when I did, when I was approached by Simon & Schuster to do one, I was looking at my, my calendar, and I literally would take notes every day, and I said, this may not be that difficult to go back and re remember what happened one, two, three years ago and do this. And and uh, for me, it was also kind of a therapeutic and cathartic experience to be able to share that story and, and share with people the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I hope for many students that are thinking about the Citadel or going there, read it and understand, and their parents too, that this is what the experience in large part is like. And I'm sure it's been over 20 years since I went, since I graduated. So I'm sure some of it has changed, but the basics of a military college and how tough it is. Um, those haven't. And there are a lot of experiences that kids these days can learn from. And I treasure, treasure that moment, treasure that experience and treasure those stories that I told. Sure, sure. Um, was it again, kind of like you would envision in a, a typical uh, movie where, you know, the, the woman gets discriminated against in college, tough, uh, you know, they're, the system's trying to beat you, you know, or no, was it, were the male cadets totally polite and understanding? How did, what was the feeling there? It was very controversial. I think it's, it's weird to us today to think about how controversial it was. But back then in, in the mid-90s, it was very controversial. And um, I was harassed on and off campus. There were, always, there were always good people and always bad actors. And I, and I learned a lot about leadership. I learned uh, the good qualities of leadership and poor qualities of leadership. Uh, what I learned is that uh, women are tougher on other women in particularly in male dominated environments. And I had wives and girlfriends that would harass me when I was off campus, uh, maybe cadets or alumni of the Citadel. And I, I mean, I remember being yelled at, like trying to get into a bathroom and, you know, just off campus. It just, they were crazier times then, but I also learned that I learned that my first lesson that women are tougher on other women. I then later on, when I got out of the the, the knob system, the freshman or plebe system, people might be more familiar with that term, freshman year, and I got into leadership as a cadet. I was 
much, much, much more tougher on the female cadets that were coming behind me than I were on the male <laughs> cadets. And, and so I saw myself doing the same exact thing. And I was learning these things about myself to say, hey, time out, wait a minute, why do we do this? And I then saw it in corporate America when I got my first job out of there. And so I learned some very interesting lessons culturally about the workplace, too. Sure. That's very interesting. Nancy Mace, who became the first woman in South Carolina to be a Republican and get a spot in Congress, which really is quite incredible to think about. She spoke with the Reagan Public Library's John Hubush, executive director. Very, very interesting stuff there. We move on to May 10th, 1994. Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as president of South Africa just four years after he served a 28-year prison sentence for fighting apartheid policies which were introduced in South Africa by a white minority. So here is Mr. Mandela's inaugural speech. Your Majesties, Your Royal Highnesses, distinguished guests, comrades and friends, today all us do, by our presence here and by our celebrations in other parts of our country and the world, confer glory and hope to newborn liberty. Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long, must be born a society of which all humanity will be proud. Our daily deeds as ordinary South Africans must produce an actual South African reality that will reinforce humanity's belief in justice, strengthen its confidence in the nobility of the human soul, and sustain all our hopes for a closeless life for all. All this we owe both to ourselves and to the peoples of the world who are so well represented here today. To my compatriots, to my compatriots, I have no hesitation in saying that each one of us is as intimately attached to the soil of this beautiful country as are the famous Jacaranda trees of Pretoria and the mimosa trees of the Bushfell. Each time one of us touches the soil of this land, we feel a sense of personal renewal. The national mood changes as the seasons change. We are moved by a sense of joy and exhilaration when the grass turns green and the flowers bloom. That spiritual and physical oneness we all share with this common homeland explains that the depth of the pain we all carried in our hearts as we saw our country tear itself apart in terrible conflict. And as we saw it spend, outlawed and isolated by the peoples of the world, precisely because it had become the universal base of the pernicious ideology 
and practice of racism and racial oppression. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom, that we, who were outlaws not so long ago, had today be given the rare privilege to be hosted to the nations of the world on our own soil. We thank all our distinguished international guests for having come to take possession, possession with the people of our country. What is, after all, a common victory for justice, for peace, for human dignity? We trust that you will continue to stand by us as we tackle the challenges of building peace, prosperity, non-sexism, non-racialism, and democracy. We deeply appreciate the role that the masses of our people and their political, mass democratic, religious, women, youth, business, traditional and other leaders have played to bring about this conclusion. Not least amongst them is my second Deputy President, the Honorable F.W. de Klerk. We would also like to pay tribute to our security forces in all their ranks for the distinguished role they have played in securing our first democratic elections and the transition to democracy from bloodthirsty forces which still refuse to see the light. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to preach the cousins that divides us has come. The time to build is upon us. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. We pledge ourselves to liberate all our people from the continuing bondage of poverty, deprivation, suffering, gender, and other discrimination. We succeeded to take our last steps to freedom in conditions of relative peace. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. We have triumphed in the effort to implant hope in the breasts of the millions of our people. We enter into a covenant that we shall build a society in which all South Africans both black and white, will be able to walk tall without any fear in their hearts, assured of their inalienable right to human dignity, a rainbow nation at peace with itself and the world. As a token of his commitment to the renewal of our country, the new interim government of national unity will, as a matter of urgency, address the issue of amnesty for various categories of our people who are currently serving terms of imprisonment. We dedicate this day to all the heroes and heroines in this country 
and the rest of the world who sacrificed in many ways and surrendered their lives so that we could be free. Their dreams have become reality. Freedom is their reward. We are both humbled and elevated by the honor and privilege that you, the people of South Africa, have bestowed on us as the first president of a united, democratic, non-racial, and non-sexist South Africa to lead our country out of the valley of darkness. We understand it still that there is no easy road to freedom. We know it well that none of us acting alone can achieve success. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. Let there be work, bread, water, and salt for all. Let us know that for each, the body, the mind, and the soul have been freed to fulfill themselves. Never, never, and never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another and suffer the indignity. and suffer the indignity of being the skunk of the world. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. Nelson Mandela, that speech just uplifts you. How can he not feel a sense of optimism just hearing that from May 10th, 1994, thanks to South Africa Broadcasting Company for the audio. We wrap up the show by paying tribute to one of the iconic comedic geniuses of all time. George Carlin was born on May 12th, 1937. Here he is doing, without question, one of my very favorite routines. I'd like to talk a little bit about baseball and football. <laughs> Starting with baseball, baseball is different from any other sport in a lot of different little ways. For instance, in most sports, you score points or you score goals. In baseball, you score runs. In most sports, the ball or the object is put in play by the offensive team. In baseball, the defense puts the ball in play, and only the defensive team is allowed to touch the ball. In fact, in baseball, if an offensive player touches the ball intentionally, he's out. Also, most sports, the team is run by a coach. In baseball, the team is run by a manager. And only in baseball does the manager or the coach have to wear the same uniform the players do. Can you picture Bill Parcells in his New York Giants uniform? 
Now, baseball and football are different from one another in other kind of interesting ways, I think. First of all, um, baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. <laughs> Football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? Are you up? I'm not up. He's up. In football, the specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve someone. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. <laughs> Whoops! Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, blocking, piling on, late hitting, unnecessary roughness, and personal fouls. Baseball has the sacrifice. <laughs> football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, sleet, snow, hail, mud. Can't read the numbers on the field, can't read the yard markers, can't read the players' numbers. The struggle will continue. In baseball, if it rains, we don't come out to play. <laughs> I can't come out to play, it's raining out. <laughs> baseball has a seventh inning stretch. Football has the two-minute warning. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. We might have extra innings. Football is rigidly timed and it will end even if we have to go to sudden death. <laughs> in baseball, during the game in the stands, there's kind of a picnic feeling. Emotions may run high or low, but there's not that much unpleasantness. In football, in the stands, during the game, you can be sure that at least 27 times you are perfectly capable of taking the life of a fellow human being. <laughs> Preferably a stranger. And finally, the objectives of the two games are totally different. In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy, in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. And to be safe. I hope I'll be safe at home. Safe at home. I absolutely love that routine and no better way to wrap up the show with that. 
That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at shows, Or email me shows at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website blazinshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself and we'll talk again next week. On Blazin' History, I'm Blaze Bryant.